Hello, and welcome to Full Contact Nerd Interviews, where I talk with writers and other creative people about their work and how and why they create fantastic and mysterious places for us to explore. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Dr. Ula Klein, author of Sapphic Crossings, Cross-Dressing Women in 18th Century British Literature, published by University of Virginia Press, February 4th, 2021. Thank you for speaking Hi. with me. Thank you for inviting me. And, and here is my book. There is the book cover. Yes. Yeah. Cool book cover. Um, Thank you. So first, how did you get into studying and writing a book on this subject? Well, I was in grad school doing my PhD in English, and I took a class on 18th century British novels, and I'd never read anything in that time period before. I was interested more in Victorian literature. And then I took this class, and I was really struck by kind of how crazy 18th century literature was compared to Victorians. Mm. Uh, it just seemed so much wilder uh, with characters, you know, falling out of carriages and having duels. And it just seemed a lot, you know, kind of wilder and, and crazier. And there were so many women characters who were dressing in men's clothing, and I had no idea that that was a thing. Mm -hmm. at all um, and that even some of these women were historical personages like the real women in the past who had passed themselves off as men for one reason or another um, and just got really interested in why that is and why that that was such a popular like, character in the 18th century when we tend to think of that time period you know, any time period before the 20th century as being very kind of anti any kind of gender play Mm -hmm. Right. So I was like, how is it that people were reading this and knowing about these women and they were excited about them and they found them fascinating. And um, this is before you have a lesbian or gay or transgender identity mm -hmm. as we know it today. So that got me really thinking, like, what's going on here? And I want to know more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the interesting things when I came across your book was that, you know, I'm familiar with um, plenty of actors dressing as women for parts. Um, in theater, you know, that seemed almost commonplace, um, or I guess it was commonplace, but, but, you know, from your book blurb, it was, you know, the flip of that. So, um, so yeah, tell me how, how do you break out the book? You know, do you touch on different books or, you know, how, how do you lay it out? Well, I, I wanted every chapter to have some reference to a novel that had a cross-dressing element or cross-gender representation. Uh, but then there's a lot of um, kind of a lot of representations in the archives in like pop print culture. Uh, so pamphlets, ballads, um, kind of stuff that was printed, you know, on the cheap, right, that people could buy just like a short story or a, like a mini biography uh, or a criminal biography. Those are very popular. So I wanted to combine genres. So what I ended up doing is I didn't end up organizing the book by like novel versus play versus you know, print culture. I ended up organizing it by different body parts that seemed to be important to this project, this enterprise of cross-dressing. Mm -hmm. um, so many different stories would say things like, oh, you know, she looked just like a, a young boy, but a little too feminine because she didn't have a beard. She didn't have a five o'clock shadow, right? She didn't have, she had a smooth face. <laughs> and so that got me thinking like, well, what is the role of beardedness when it comes to establishing gender? 
because gender obviously played a big role in desire uh, and sexuality at this time. Mm -hmm. So I started thinking about those different body parts, and I noticed that facial hair, uh, breasts, genitalia, and legs were these kind of body parts or parts of the body that came up over and over again Mm -hmm. as um, problematic for gender passing or sexually exciting or titillating. So I decided to organize my chapters around those body parts, and then I would, you know, choose different texts that that talked about those body parts for each chapter. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. One of the things I I also look into, um, you know, I go to a lot of conventions where there's a lot of cosplay, and I've okay. noticed that lately, you know, you see a lot more. Um, well, you've always had uh, women cosplaying male characters. But I've noticed a lot more use of, of like be- drawing in beards and mustaches mm-hmm. to establish, um, the character they're playing. So, um, it just made me interested in your topic and comparing it to modern day, you know, people, people playing mm-hmm. different genders or yeah, opposite and the gender. I, I feel like I've, I've met people now who, who do drag king performances, which is kind of exciting mm-hmm. and different. Like, I think people are really familiar with drag queens uh, because of shows like Drag Race. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are you know, women who have these male personas who perform as drag kings. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on top of that, there's been more, I think, in popular culture, for sure, uh, with uh, shows like Gentleman Jack, um, about Anne Lister, who's a little bit beyond my time period. She's kind of like into the 19th century, which is why I don't write a whole lot about her in my book. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe in the next project. Yeah. But um, Alfred Nobbs, that movie with Glenn Close, where she plays a 19th century woman who lived essentially as a man, mm-hmm. dressed as a man. So I started thinking also about how this has become a kind of a touchstone and people are more and more interested in these histories. Um and uh, the show Black uh, Black Flag? No, wait, what is it called? It's uh, the Pirate Show. Yeah, the Pirate Show. I think it's I think it's Black Flag. Yeah, yeah. So that show um, actually has the the real life person Anne Bonny as a character, mm-hmm. uh, and she was also a cross dressing woman mm-hmm. in um, this this you know popular criminal biography called The History of the Pirates by Captain Charles Johnson. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, th- I just thought, wow, there's a lot going on in popular culture with, you know, representations of, of female-bodied people dressing in men's clothing, passing themselves off as men. Uh, there's more and more interest in this, uh, and that kind of fits in well with with the project that I was working on in grad school. And that's why I was like, okay, I'm going to turn it into a book mm-hmm. for publication as opposed to just uh, the dissertation. So obviously there's a difference between dressing as a man to pose as a man for some reason versus dressing mm-hmm. as a man because you feel, you know, a woman feels like a man. So is, is that explored in your, your book? Yes. Yes. Um, there's been a lot of interest in thinking about transgender studies in term, kind of how they relate to people in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course the, the identity of transgender is a modern kind of, it's a modern name, right? The word is not in existence before the 20th century. Um, and so there's a question, right? How would you talk about people in the past mm-hmm. uh, if we don't know what they felt, mm-hmm. right? Because there's a lot of theories. Um, you know, did, you know, someone like Hannah Snell, who's on the cover of my book, mm-hmm. uh, did she dress as a soldier 
because she really just was going to go look for her husband, Mm. right? Or is that something that was put into the biography in order to kind of normalize it, Mm -hmm. right? Um, We don't really know because we can't go back in time and interview her. Mm -hmm. Um, And we know that when she came back to England, she dressed in women's clothing again and she married a man. But one thing that really surprised me was when I looked through the archives, you can actually find quite a few newspaper clippings, like really short little notices um, about women who had lived as men for decades and were not discovered to be female bodied until they died and there was an autopsy performed. Uh, And their wives would often say, oh, no, I had no idea. I thought she was a man. Mm-hmm. She was. She acted like a man to me in the bedroom. Wink, wink. Mm. Um, so I think that there, there's a lot of ambiguity, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and we can never say for sure how someone felt, whether they were doing something out of necessity or because you know she was female-bodied and she was in love with other women, and the only way to do that uh, and not get in trouble was to dress as a man. Mm-hmm. Or was it about a gender identity? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, that's one of the things that I kind of think a little bit about, or a lot about even in mm-hmm. my book. Yeah. How do we understand the representation of cross-gender people in the past when every single representation of them in text is so fraught, right? It's, it's uncertain. It's often mm-hmm. told from a third person's point of view, mm-hmm. someone who might be trying to sell you know, a scandalous tale, mm-hmm. you know, there's this other kind of aspect of, you know, trying to sell these these stories and make money off of them and, and maybe hype up the, the scandalousness mm-hmm. but, or downplay it so it doesn't get censored. Right. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of reading between the lines mm-hmm. and uh, speculation. And I try to be as sensitive as I can to the many different possibilities mm-hmm. embodied by these people yeah. um, and, and the people who wrote about them. I'm speaking with Dr. Ula Klein, author of Sapphic Crossings. You can find more information about her work at sapphiccrossings.weebly.com. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews, so far, please subscribe. If you want daily book suggestions for new fiction and nonfiction studies in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, mysteries, gaming, game design, film history, and more, Please check out my YouTube channel, Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd, my website, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com, my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews, and my Twitch channel, Full Contact Nerd. If you're looking for new military and general history books and information, check out warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com, my YouTube channel, Warscholar and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want new technology, science, and space books, check out technologyinspace.com, my YouTube channel, Space Walks Money Talks, and my podcast, Technology and Space. Now back to the podcast. Well, it actually, so, and I feel I feel like I should apologize in a sense, because I use the word, you know, someone who feels like they're a different I- identity, and that sort of downplays to use the word feel, you know, instead of identifies, mm-hmm. um, seems to downplay it. So that sort of also makes me think of the question, you know, if in, an individual identified with the di- a different sex than they are biologically, how, you know, how could that 
how could you come, how could you analyze that in, in older literature or older, mm -hmm. you know, any kind of information? How, how do you kind of break it out? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, that's a, that's actually something that I was asking myself a lot because mm -hmm. I was working on this um, in grad school and I was thinking primarily of these women as uh, like kind of early lesbians, mm -hmm. um, that they, they were dressing in men's clothing so that they could woo other women, court other women. Mm -hmm. And frequently they're represented as being kind of feminine despite their masculine clothing. Mm -hmm. And they're often represented as being attractive to other women precisely because they're kind of feminine or androgynous, which suggests mm -hmm. that some of these women, not cross-dressed women, mm -hmm. were uh, attracted to the cross-dresser, not because of her masculine appearance, but because of this femininity about her. Mm -hmm. Which if you think about, you know, how popular someone like Leonardo DiCaprio was in the 90s, and mm -hmm. he was uh, a little bit more smooth-faced mm -hmm. than now. Right. Uh, that, that idea that teen heartthrobs are often kind of androgynous, uh, mm -hmm. very boyish looking, it kind of goes into that um, that ideal of androgynous beauty, mm -hmm. which is linked right to Shakespeare's time as well right. uh, with uh, boys playing women's roles on stage mm -hmm. so i was focusing primarily on the cross-dressing women as women and i was at some conferences and people asked me point blank they said why are you not looking at these people as transgender mm -hmm. right and so i had to really think about that question um and i think the first part of that answer is you know why was i thinking about it this way I mean, obviously that was my research interest but also that's often how they're represented by these authors. Mm -hmm. The authors are often scandalized, not necessarily by the gender crossing, but by the sexual transgression, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, so they would often think of these women as, as being kind of, you know, scandalous, mm -hmm. not necessarily because they cross-dress, but because they were pursuing relationships with other women. So I think mm -hmm. that's where I got the sense that, like, 18th century authors, for example, were interested in the sort of sapphic Right. That, right, that element of the, the representation. But it's true, if we think about this from a transgender studies or transgender history, mm -hmm. trying to piece together the history of transgender people in the past, certainly many of the people that I write about would be part of that history, uh, a history where we have examples of people who dressed and maybe even lived uh, as a, a gender that they were not quote-unquote born as, mm. right, or, or signed at birth, let's say. So I think, to me, the, the way that you do that is that you, you keep an open mind and you tread lightly mm. right? and you keep those possibilities open. To me, that's the most important thing is to think about the many different kinds of possibilities because, I mean, there's a bisexual history here as well, mm. right? It's possible to also think about someone like Hannah Snell who had at least two different husbands, but also who courted women while dressed as a man, it is possible to think of her as bisexual as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's where it gets exciting. If you start keeping things open, keep the possibilities open, mm -hmm. uh, then you might be able to find you know, more than one kind of history mm -hmm. in the past, in the archive. Right, right. How about the, um, the laws at this time? Did you get into the laws? Um, how they, you know, you know, was it a criminal? Little bit, to... A little bit. You know, it, it's an interesting question because with gay men, the sodomy arrests and trial reports are, are some of the most powerful archival evidence for um, gay male desire in the past. Mm -hmm. But nothing like that really exists for women mm -hmm. uh, because there often weren't 
laws regarding um, female same-sex sexual liaison. Hmm. Um, Same-sex sex uh, sex acts between women were not uh, governed under sodomy laws. Hmm. Um, So there's a lot less of that. But again, you do occasionally get some of this um, with women who are called female husbands. Mm -hmm. And those were women who were caught courting women and then also convincing them to marry them under the guise that they were men. Mm -hmm. And they would continue the charade in the bedroom with the use of uh, dildo. Mm -hmm. So this is when, if you were caught, right, and and the dildo was the evidence against you, this is when you know, some of these women were actually strung up. I mean, in Europe, there was a couple of them who were caught and who were actually uh, put to death, I think, hanged. Mm. Um, No one in England was ever, I think, hanged under those circumstances. But um, one of the women I write about, Mary Hamilton, who went under the name George Hamilton, and um, courted several women, married several women, was was bigamous Mm. (laughs) in addition to being a woman. Yeah. and she would actually defraud some of these women. She would, you know, if they were getting too close to figuring out who she was, they would take their money and just she would book it. Hmm. Um, so she eventually is arrested and charged with vagrancy. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and 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 also kind of a part of the I think part of the charges are that she imposed on the people of this town, like she lied to them essentially. Mm-hmm. So she is charged with with you know lying and um, with vagrancy, mm-hmm. and nothing like there's like there's a sexual tinge to those, and everyone knew what was what was going on. But the official charges are not like there's no the, they, they don't use the word sodomy or, or any other language relating to to her sex. Mm-hmm. Even though everyone knew that she had this, you know, illicit desire, mm-hmm. um, so I think that's it's, it's a little bit harder maybe when you're looking into the histories of, of female-bodied people because they were often not subject to the law ex- explicitly in the same way as men. Mm-hmm. Sodomy. Yeah, interesting. So let's uh, turn back towards the actual clothing that was worn, um, and I'm curious. Just you know, you have your noble your no, nobility type of or your upper class mm-hmm. clothes and you have your lower class clothes. Was there any, any, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, but what, what did you find that they tended to wear, you know, when they were taking on a male persona or was I mean, there a difference? Used, you know, they usually took on, uh, whatever, pers- whatever cl- the clothing of the class that they were from mm-hmm. usually, um, as far as I can tell, I know that in the case of Mary Hamilton, at least in the story about her, it says that she dresses as a Methodist minister at one point, mm-hmm. uh, and then also as a doctor. So it kind of seems like maybe like middle-class garb of some kind. Um, in one of the stories, one of the fictional stories that I write about, um, there is a, a young lady, Leonora, who decides to cross-dress as a clergyman. Because the clergy would wear kind of like, a, almost like they look like dresses in a way. And mm. it's explained that, you know, she's like, oh, well, you know, it's almost going to be like wearing a dress. Mm. Uh, so I won't have to wear breeches. And it won't be quite so unladylike. And then it, with female soldiers, they're they're often dressing in uh, in their brother's clothing and then enlisting and then they're in uniform. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like cross-dressing was often the province of working class women and maybe middle class women. And 
as far as real life cross dressers um, or people who dressed in, in you know, cross gender appearance, uh, you have the Chevalier Dayan, who was a male bodied person who was a soldier and um, was in the service of the King of France and, and was a courtier. Uh, so would have been wearing, you know, kind of finer stuff. Uh, and then lives in England as a woman and also is often depicted as wearing quite fine clothing. Mm. Um, so I, I think most people would stick to the class that they came from. And, and that makes sense at the time period because, um, you know, class was such an important determiner of, of your status. And there was a lot of anxiety about class crossing and masquerades mm. or the fact that, you know, no. women would give their, you know, their ladies' servants, right? They would give them their cast-off clothing, and then the servants would have to, like, you know, make them plainer, like take off some of the decor on them so they wouldn't be quite as fancy. Uh. And there was a lot of concern, right? How will you know the class of people if they're all wearing the same clothing? Yeah. You know, the servants are wearing the cast-offs from the lady of the house. If, if you know, sex workers are wearing the same clothing as, as aristocratic ladies, how will we know, right, who is who? Yeah. Um, so I think people tended to stick to what they knew. Mm-hmm. I, and it's I, also like, well, could you get your hands on, right? Your brother's stuff, your father's stuff. Yeah. I wondered if any any of the type of clothing back, back then lent itself to more easily take on a male persona. I guess that was part of my question, too. Um, and you mentioned, like, the clergy outfits mm. kind of, in a sense. So Yeah, like an easier kind of... Uh, uh, switch right mm, yeah. that's the only time i've seen that 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 kind of um, decision uh you know on stage stage managers wanted to cast women in men's roles so they would wear these tight breeches and stockings to show off their legs mm-hmm. uh, because women's legs were kind of taboo they were under these big skirts that you didn't get to see women's legs you know if you saw an ankle it was scandalous yeah um so I think that there was a certain amount of excitement about wearing breeches and tights mm-hmm. um, that maybe was part of the allure of cross-dressing mm-hmm. as well. Um, and then also the fact that, you know, those skirts were so bulky. I think in a lot of the stories, there seems to be a suggestion that, you know, wearing trousers or breeches was just going to give you a lot more mobility, mm-hmm. uh, especially if you were going to be like a female pirate aboard a ship, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you're going to wear trousers that you can do all the heavy lifting in on, on the ship. How about, I don't think we've touched on this yet, but how about um, men who would want women to dress as men, you know, for, you know, sexual play or any kind of um, anything mm-hmm. like that? It, it, did did you come across any of that? You know, there is a little bit of that in um, John Cleland's novel, The Memoirs of a Woman of Pleasure, or Fanny Hill, uh, which is a a very early erotic novel um, of the mid-18th century, Mm -hmm. British author. Um, And there is a story. It's, it's, you know, little vignettes. They're like little erotic stories that are kind of nested within this larger story of this character, Fanny Hill. It's just an excuse for, you know, describing a lot of sex. Mm -hmm. And so one of the little stories about one of the friends that she has um, at this brothel is this young lady, Emily, they go to a masquerade and Emily dresses as a shepherd boy, I think it is. Um, and she gets kind of picked up by a man 
And it's not until they're about to have sex that she realizes that this man thinks that she is a young man mm. um, uh, and that he wants to have anal sex with her. Mm. And of course, she's you know, yeah. freaking out because that's not what she <laughs> was prepared for, right. apparently. Mm. Um, and so there's this moment in the story where she reveals to the man, she's like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm a girl. Mm. And the man is disappointed. Mm. And he has to kind of like, uh, cover it up somehow, <laughs> right? And, and be like, oh, that's okay. Uh, mm-hmm. so there is, and, and that's a story. It's a fictionalized story. Um, mm-hmm. but it does make you wonder, you know, what were, um, again, like what was the allure of, of this like androgynous, youthful person, uh, that it was, it was going to be, um, an alluring or attractive object of desire for, for men, for women. Mm-hmm. And that gets back to some of my my really central interests in you know what is happening with gender and how people are how are people thinking about gender at this time? Why are these cross gender people or androgynous people or people with mixed masculine feminine characteristics? Why are they so attractive? Why are they thought of as so interesting and attractive at this time? How about uh, you mentioned different aspects? H- hair length was that how indicative of that was uh, at the time was it of gender? You know, I think it could be indicative because there are a couple places where the women talk about cutting their hair off. Mm-hmm. Um, now, men didn't didn't all have very short hair. If you wore a wig, you would keep it very short. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, not everyone wore a wig. If you were a working person, if you were a sailor, mm-hmm. you probably were not wearing a wig. Right. Um, so women tended to have very long hair. So I think what a lot of them would do is they would just kind of chop it maybe like shoulder length just long enough they could put in a little ponytail um, at the back of their heads, which was not uncommon for uh, gentlemen at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny, though, in a lot of the stories, they're a lot less concerned with the hair and way more concerned with facial hair. Hmm. You know, there's all this like, oh, they're going to blacken their face, or she was, you know, she was called Molly Gray by the soldiers because she was so smooth-faced. Um, there's a lot of concern about uh, not having facial hair, even though in the 18th century, it wasn't popular to have a beard. Hmm. Okay. Uh, but I guess the stubble, right? You didn't have any stubble, and so that was going to be suspicious. Hmm. Okay. How about um, tattoos? Oddly enough, that did not come up mm-hmm. in my research at all. I hadn't even thought about that. Not hmm. like military men having tattoos or sailors. Sailors, yeah. But I, I don't I, even know how popular that was in the 18th century at all. Yeah. Make a note for myself. Tattoos. Yeah, it's. I think it. I think it. The, the interest in tattoos was up and down, but I, I think that <clears throat> sailors in the 1700s were pretty covered with tattoos, but I didn't know if there was any tradition among women of. I would imagine they wouldn't have worn any kind of tattoo, but I don't know. I don't want to assume that. You know. It's never mentioned. Um... And it probably would have kind of gone against the idea of femininity, of constructions of femininity at the time. Mm-hmm. There are a couple times that um, sort of the whiteness of the woman's skin is mentioned as like a marker of femininity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this idea of like being blemishless, right, mm-hmm. of being kind of pale, right, which was the standard for beauty at the time. So I would imagine that I would I would guess. Right, that women were not getting tattoos because it was not going to be seen as as ladylike or feminine. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually don't know what the role of uh, 
uh, tattoos was, or the extent of tattoos among um, the British Navy or Marines at this time? Mm. That's an interesting question. And uh, how about uh, jewelry? And again, going to sailors, sometimes sailors would wear, you know, maybe an earring or something. Mm -hmm. um, how much did, did you come across that very often discussion of jewelry? No, no actually, I didn't. Um, hmm. the, story, the, the pirate stories that I read did not mention uh, jewelry at all. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, okay. Um, and how about, was there any underground literature that you came across? you know, made for people who wanted to hide whatever was being written about. Uh, what do you mean? Um, any kind of, uh, you know, just like a, maybe a little booklet of, of salacious mm. stories, you know, that was passed around among, you know, small groups of friends uh, that might discuss any of this. You know, I, not really. What was interesting to me was precisely the fact that, like, any, anything that seemed like it was underground at all turned out to not be uh, at all. Uh, um, so something like, you know, Fanny Hill, which we think, oh, you know, erotic literature, and this is going to be, like, on the down low, right, passed around from hand to hand, like, Lady Chatterley's lover in the 20th century. No. Um, well, unlike Lady Chatterley's Lover, it's like it's the thing that's like everyone's read it, even though you're not supposed to, right? So I think that that was one of the really fun and interesting and maybe surprising things uh, was to think like how people, most people, most adults probably knew what a, what a dildo was. And people, many people in places like London, big cities would even know where to find one. Mm. Which I was like, really? Sex toys in the 18th century? Okay. Mm. I had no idea. All right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there were these like rogues dictionaries that were published mm -hmm. um, and they would have slang um, and they would have um, all sorts of information about like underground culture. But again, they weren't hard to find. Hmm. Right. I think they appealed to people precisely because they were called things like the rogues dictionary or black guardiana. You know, these, these alluring names that made you feel like, ooh, I'm doing something wrong. But really, you and all your friends have already read it, and everyone's read it. Huh. Interesting. I'm speaking with Dr. Ula Klein, author of Sapphic Crossings. You can find more information about her work at sapphiccrossings.weebly.com. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd interviews so far, please subscribe. If you want daily book suggestions for new fiction and nonfiction studies in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, mysteries, gaming, game design, film history, and more, please check out my YouTube channel, Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd, my website, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com, my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews, and my Twitch channel, Full Contact Nerd. If you're looking for new military and general history books and information, check out warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com, my YouTube channel, War Scholar, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want new technology, science, and space books, check out technologyinspace.com, my YouTube channel, Spacewalks Money Talks, and my podcast, Technology and Space. Now back to the podcast. What did, did any of these, anything that you came across, uh, was there any Gothic that included any of this? Um, yes, yes. Actually, it didn't make it into my book, unfortunately. 
Um, but in Matthew Lewis is the monk. There is a female character. Um, so you don't know it's a woman until quite late in the novel. You know, it's like that big. <laughs> and uh, she's been posing as a monk. But actually, she's also the devil or like an agent of the devil, as it turns out, because of you know, the gothic. Yeah. Uh, and in the monk, it's all real, right? It's, it's actual magic and, and evil, huh. uh, as opposed to like someone like Anne Radcliffe, where it's made up, right? It's like a wind moving the veil. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for Matthew Lewis, it's, it's real. It's the devil. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's kind of hard to say, like, if it's cross-dressing for real or if it's like a disguise within a disguise. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly there is like an element of sexual titillation. Right. Mm. And an anti-Catholic sentiment, which was common to the Gothic. Right. A lot of Gothic tales are very anti-Catholic. It was like, ooh, look at these creepy Catholics. Yeah. They've got, you know, chapels in their houses, all these statues and the statues bleed sometimes. And it's very scary. We English Protestants are not like that, but we want to read about it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So in that novel, I think that, yeah, the fact that, like, he's a monk, right, and and then, like, there's all these stories about what, you know, what are monks and nuns doing all those lonely nights by themselves, Mm -hmm. Uh, and what would happen if one of them turned out to be a woman in disguise. Um, But what's interesting is I was just talking about this with a medievalist Mm -hmm. uh, who mentioned that um, it wasn't actually uncommon in the Middle Ages for women to dress as men so they could become monks and live as monks because that was mm-hmm. preferable sometimes to marriage. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, that's a little, that's, that's a side sidebar. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I think that's, that's the, the monk is definitely the example from the Gothic that comes to mind mm-hmm. um, most prominently. Okay. Um, are there, I, I was going to turn towards how you did your research, but are there any other significant themes that we haven't touched on yet that you'd want to mention? I mean, I guess what I, I kind of touched on this earlier, but I'll just you know, reiterate the biggest thing that I found that I was really interested in. Um, and I was a little surprised by pleasantly surprised was just how often, whether it was fiction or non nonfiction, right? Fictionalized biographies, uh, how often, you know, non-cross-dressed women would find the cross-dresser attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the cross-dresser would often be like this perfect lover, you mm-hmm. know, and um, knew, because they were women, they would know the right thing to say to like court a woman. Mm-hmm. So the fact that they were mm-hmm. women themselves almost made them like better lovers, right? And that was kind of exciting and interesting um, to find in, in so many stories. Was there a difference between uh, whether the writer or the creator of this work was male or female? In some cases, yes. I think the the novels, especially novels by women uh, from the later part of the 18th century, um, the cross-dressing is maybe like a little bit less of a part of the story. It's just kind of like a, it's often used symbolically to indicate like some kind of uh, treachery or maybe like a lack of morals on the part of this character who is, you know, going to masquerades all the time or who is, you know, dressing as a man and and taking part in duels, which was illegal. Mm. Um, Whereas the, I feel like the male authors, they're often split between either, you know, writing about these women as if they're heroes. Look what she did. She fought for her country and she didn't get caught even though she was a woman. Mm -hmm. Or they're kind of like titillating, like, ooh, look at her. She's... She's such a good person at, at seducing other women, and let's read this, and uh, it's very exciting and titillating. Mm-hmm. 
uh, so the kind of what you think of as like men uh, being interested in lesbianism for the kind of sexual pleasure for men, right? Kind of performing for men. Mm. That was that was an element definitely in the male authored stories that does, doesn't come up in the female authored ones. Hmm. Interesting. Um, actually, what you were saying for some reason, I forget when the the story of Joan of Arc. Where, what period exactly that comes from. But I would imagine at this point, cause she, I think she pretended to be a man and, you know, mm-hmm. she was a knight mm-hmm. and then she revealed yeah. herself to be a woman. And obviously a lot of people would have known that the Joan of Arc story at this period. Mm-hmm. So I just wonder how much, you know, what, what that might have affected people's, um, outlook on these sorts of things. That's just kind of a random thought. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, I feel like Joan of Arc doesn't really come up, and and it might be the time difference. Like she's, right. I think she dies in the early 15th century. Yeah. Um. So, 300 years earlier, mm-hmm. or 200. Anyway, it's been a while, and she was also French mm-hmm. and Catholic. Uh, um. Yeah. So I feel yeah. like English authors are not dying to. Uh, to compare their heroines to to Joan of Arc, mm-hmm. uh, the idea that Amazon does come up quite a bit, like that uh, that kind of myth, uh, the myth of the Amazon, the woman warrior, mm-hmm. comes up. But also, again, like people kept asking me about that with regards to like the breasts, and uh, I feel like in the stories that bring up the idea of Amazons, they never bring up that part of the myth, right? That they would cut off a breast to be better warriors or whatever. Mm-hmm. It was usually like, oh, she was a like an Amazon in the way that she was so strong and so good at fighting. Um, it was more about that rather than like some kind of bodily modification. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting because I think I've heard or read that that idea of the Amazons cutting off one of their breasts is like a more recent myth that actually didn't exist at the time or like it was something that, you know, newer writers dreamt up. Yeah. Well, that would make sense then as why 18th century writers are not mentioning that at all. Yeah. But that's, I'd have to look into that again. Um, But uh, okay. So let's talk about the resources. So obviously you read these, um, the books, the writings that you wrote about, Mm -hmm. Um, how else did you investigate this, this topic? Um, well, there there have been some really wonderful researchers who have gone into the archives, like newspaper archives, um, and they've they've written about what they found. And I did go to the British Library and look up some of these newspaper notices, right? And they're often very short. It'd be like, oh, um, a group of thieves was arrested yesterday in Sheffield, and two of them were women in men's clothing. Hmm. And... and Occasionally, you'll get something a little bit juicier, like um, there was the autopsy yesterday in the town of Manchester for such and such, you know, you know James Smith, uh, who upon the autopsy turned out to be a woman uh, who had been living uh, as a man and working as a butcher in this community for 30 years. The wife says she had no idea. Done. Yeah. Right. And so those are kind of interesting. And I don't necessarily talk about them in depth because, you know, they're, they're so short. Um, but I did... I did think that that was significant evidence of the fact that people would have been familiar with the concept. So part of my argument is that these were not just like one-offs that, you know, if you didn't read the right book, you wouldn't know about it. My argument in part is that people throughout the 18th century in England were familiar with the idea of a woman dressing as a man and passing herself off as a man. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but yeah, a lot of my research was, you know, sitting at home with a cup of tea and a book. Um, we're looking at, uh, you know, scans of 18th century books and pamphlets mm-hmm. uh, and just reading, annotating and kind of deciding what was going to go in the book and what wasn't, what was worth writing about and what wasn't. And then seeing what had other people already written about, because a lot of people have been writing about cross-dressing women at this time uh, for a while. So it was kind of about a lot of it was about taking all this resources and saying, you know, how can I make a coherent argument about what's important about these texts and these women? Mm-hmm. Okay. What part of the research was most enjoyable? Did you get to try? Uh, did you do any sort of travel for any reason? I did. Or? I did. Yeah. No. So I, I went to um, I went to the British Library in London. I went to the National Library of Ireland in Dublin, mm-hmm. uh, and and both those were lovely places to do research. Mm-hmm. And I also went to the Folger Shakespeare Library in D.C., hmm. and I was actually researching Elizabeth Inchbald there uh, because they don't just have, you know, stuff about Shakespeare there. A lot of their holdings are actually from the 18th and 19th century uh, and, and the 20th century about performances of Shakespeare's plays and hmm. different editions of the plays. And as it turned out, Elizabeth Inchbald, who wrote A Simple Story, which is the book that I write about in my book, She'd been an actress who had done cross-dressing roles on stage. And then kind of like after her stage career was kind of waning, she started working as an editor and she was basically part of this collection of Shakespeare's plays that were being republished. Mm -hmm. And she was writing an introduction to every single one. So the Folger has those, the full set. It also has all her diaries, which are these like tiny, tiny little leather bound, like, pocket diaries uh, that she, you know, just kind of kept track of, like, she would keep track of, like, the weather, um, how much money she had, how she was feeling that day, and maybe, like, one other thing, like, oh, so-and-so came to see me today. Like, they're very, like, very brief. Um, And so, like, those diaries didn't really make it into my book, per se, but just being able to hold her diaries, I mean, that was a really amazing moment, just to be like, this is... These were held and written in by the person whose novel I'm writing about, and, yeah. and they're still here. Mm-hmm. You know, that's amazing. That that was really uh, an amazing moment, like a like touching the past, quite mm-hmm. literally. Yeah, yeah. When you mentioned uh, performing on stage, another question came to mind, which is um, the use of makeup. Would uh, mm-hmm. was that touched on at all? I get. I don't know how much women or even men used makeup in this period. And would that have been mentioned? I mean, I think I think women used a significant amount of makeup. Although, of course, the less you used, um, the more kind of I don't know, vaunted your beauty would be, right? That you are kind of a pure, simple person. Hmm. Uh, by the end of the 18th century, though, you do have, um, I think, a lot of people using rouge, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is one story. Um, about the the one sister dresses as a clergyman, right, to 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 run away from home, and she or no, I guess she's a cousin, and her cousin uh, is going to pose as her sister. Mm-hmm. They're going to pose as a brother and sister, and she's a clergyman, uh, and the the other young lady is going to be her her sister. And I guess there is a mention of the fact that she is so beautiful that they have to like shade 
the resplendency of her face, right? Mm-hmm. They have to actually like tone down like her, her, I guess, natural blushes. Mm-hmm. And then the other sister is so kind of wan uh, and pale that they have to give her a little bit of blush, right? As part of her disguise, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's the one explicit mention of makeup. And then, you know, in some of the other stories of female soldiers, they talk about darkening their faces, but they don't really say how they do it. There are some female uh, warrior ballads where they talk about using pitch or like, you know, cork, right? Mm-hmm. Burnt cork uh, to darken their faces, but it's not really makeup, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more like a, like a disguise. So I feel like I've I've unfortunately focused too much on these elements and kind of moved away from your your approach to what does gender mean. And that's okay. I mean, it's it's all it's all fun to talk about. But but so yeah. So but the question that I want to ask is how important. And I guess we have our assumptions that gender was you know you have your men and your women you know back then Mm -hmm. we assume that it was very strongly adhered to. Is that is that assumption correct or was there more fluidity then than than we might have expected i don't know that there was fluidity um i think that that there was a sort of uh idea right of a binary at this time that most people felt was was the true thing um and that you know before the 18th century and, and into like maybe the beginnings there was this idea that you know if you were a woman who desired other women, that must mean that you were actually intersex, right? That you probably had an enlarged clitoris Hmm. or undescended testicles. um, And that all you had to do was, you know, wait until those testicles would descend. And then, you know, you would be actually a man and your desire would be kind of explained. Hmm. Right. Um, And so there was an awareness of of intersex people. uh, And there was kind of a confusion, I think, you know, for a long time about what, what their status was in different cultures mm-hmm. uh, would treat intersex people differently. Uh, and of course, in the 18th century, they're called hermaphrodites. And there's a, there's stories, right, of, of, you know, young women who kind of like ran around too much, they exerted too much energy as adolescents. And then like, you know, their testicles suddenly descended and their penis popped out and it turned out, oh, actually, you know, the reason that she was kind of in a girl was because really she was a boy. Mm-hmm. And now she's a boy and we don't have to worry about it. Hmm. Um, and as the 18th century progresses, that idea of kind of desire for the same sex as like an, you know, a part of like a, the wrong, being the wrong gender kind of recedes a little bit. And uh, you see more and more authors thinking about kind of a, a disease in the mind, right? Hmm. That it's uh, some kind of uh, wrong headedness, that, that it's a desire that is wrong. It kind of becomes this coded as immoral which becomes stronger in the 19th century. Um, and so they start thinking about um, desire as, as not rooted in like biology, right? Um, but certainly I think there was, most people would have at that time said, you know, there's, there's a gender binary and you're either male or female, man or woman, and that's going to determine your entire life um, and how you live. But of course, in practice, there were always people who either lived in the margins or who, you know, didn't exactly fulfill that binary. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, 
I think what's interesting is that this, the texts that I write about often portray a fascination with, uh, and even like maybe a, a small amount of acceptance of those people. Mm-hmm. That people were really interested in their stories and wanted to read about them, and, and they found them interesting. How about um, mm-hmm. anything about asexuality or, or no, you know, non, non-gender? It, I mean, mm-hmm. I know that's much, you know, more modern ideas, but maybe there's something that was, that you found back then that. You know, I'm not sure that I found anything necessarily, um, in the text that I was writing in particular, mm-hmm. um, because I was focusing, trying to focus on texts where there was some kind of romantic liaison. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so I, okay. I'm not sure that it comes up in, in this work in particular, but I would venture to say there certainly were people in the 18th century who could be thought of as asexual today. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Was there a question? Normally I ask what most surprised you, but I think you've touched on that. You mentioned something that, that really surprised you. Um, was there a question that you'd really like to get an answer for? And maybe you feel like you kind of feel like it's a settled question at this point, or you'd really, want more you want more information to get to this particular question that you mm. have there's so many <laughs> yeah oh yeah i know well it's, it's sort of like a, a psychological test like what comes to mind when i ask that what what pops in your mind like oh yeah that you know nothing yeah i mean i guess <laughs> i mean i would love to go back in time and talk to some of these real life women mm-hmm. right who who had lived at least part of their lives in, in men's clothing um, and who pursued relationships with other women. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not sure, again, that there would be an answer because sexual orientation, as we think of it today, didn't exist at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not just in the sense of, you know, the term lesbian or transgender didn't exist then, or, or lesbian existed, but it was thought of as like an inhabitant of the island of Lesbos, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but people didn't think of themselves as straight either. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, if you asked, if you went back in time and talked to, you know, Hannah Snell, right, um, who is an illiterate hosier's daughter and then joined the Marines mm-hmm. after having a failed marriage where she was abandoned, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and her, she had a baby and then it died soon after I uh, was born. And then she joined the Marines and, and found out that her husband was dead. And may, you know, maybe she pursued some of these women that we are, have in the story. Maybe it was part of her cover. Maybe that was it. Mm-hmm. We don't know. But if I talked to her, you know, what would she say? Well, we don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it would, be, it would be hard to give those people back then the language that we have today and make them understand how we think of ourselves in these categories that were not really the same categories back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think maybe that's kind of what's exciting about history and maybe also a little sad, right? We search for our history, um, looking at people in the past, but the culture has changed so much and the language has changed so much and how we think of ourselves has changed so much that mm-hmm. the answers that we seek might always be a little elusive. Yeah. 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 To the point where the people experiencing it might not even know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like with, uh, um, with Ann Lister, right. Who's like the main 
who made a show about her called Gentleman Jack, mm-hmm. you know, there's this whole debate, right? Was she gender non-binary? Was she gender fluid or gender queer? Was she a lesbian? You know, some people call her the first modern lesbian. Um, was she transgender? And I'm not sure that she, if we went back in time and talked to her, if she would have an answer to that, right? I think she would have to come to the future and live here for a while <laughs> yeah. before she could make her answer. Yeah, yeah. And even then she might say, well, I'm a creature of my time. Yeah, yeah. So was there anything that had an emotional impact on you? And I know this can be maybe kind of dry, you know, researching this, but did you come across anything that really, and that could be positive or negative, you know, something you didn't expect to, to come across. And I think the story of Charlotte Chark is really moving. Um, you know, she was the daughter of that famed actor and theater manager, Kali Kibber, or Sibber, depending on how you pronounce it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was so famous and so well-known and she was one of his daughters, but they had a falling out. Um, and it, I don't think it was ever really patched up. And so she was kind of cut off from like the family and she made kind of like a, a bad marriage and eventually was on her own taking care of her daughter. And she made some poor career choices and eventually was out of work. She couldn't work in on the London stage anymore. And so her book describes, you know, her being like an abject poverty. At one point she says she's dressing as a man to avoid her creditors um, you know, at one point she's working as a sausage maker and seller to kind of make ends meet. Um, and there are lots of descriptions of her kind of like trudging through the cold, rainy English landscape, you know, going to these towns where they were going to be strolling players that were going to put on a play and hope that they would get paid because if the people didn't like it and they might not pay them and they walked or, or taking, you know, wagons all this way. Um, and at one point, yeah, they have, she and her kind of, well, she and her best friend or partner, romantic partner, we don't know. Um, mm-hmm. she called herself Mr. Brown and her partner was Mrs. Brown. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anyway, at one point she and Mrs. Brown have to walk something like 40 miles on foot. And she describes just how exhausted they are by the end. And they literally like don't have money to, to pay for a cart to take like the last couple miles and, um, and you also know that at the same time, she's trying to support her daughter. And I don't know, like that whole story was just so sad, you know, and I wasn't writing about as much of the whole story. I was writing about the relationship as it's represented between these two women. Mm-hmm. Um, but you just kind of feel like, man, that was a really rough, rough life of a strolling player, yeah. uh, especially a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of being like without any support without any anything to fall back on even though you have a rich a rich father a rich family mm-hmm. well-known family in london and they've kind of cast you off um and uh you're at some point almost like sounds like she's starving you know so i think that was really moved by by that story i kind of wanted to give her a hug which was she i'm sorry if you said this already but was she cast off because of her relationships or her attitudes in this regard i think it was a little bit of of several things i think it was the fact that she um she had made a name for herself on stage um playing a character that was spoofing her father Uh. um she joined a theater that was kind of uh in competition with where her father was working 
but then also some people have speculated that her penchant for cross-dressing may have also been uh, part of their break. Hmm. Um, so I, it's kind of unclear. And she never exactly says it. You know, the book says that it's like an apology and an appeal to her father to, to be brought back into the fold. Mm-hmm. Um, so, of course, she's not going to belabor, you know, why they fell out in the first place. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, there's a little bit of mystery uh, about that, as far as I can tell. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know people are constantly researching. Um, <laughs> so there might be some new information out about that. But, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. It just seemed kind of sad to me, and I was I was very moved by that. Yeah, by her story. Yeah, that is pretty sad. What do you hope readers will take away from the book? I mean, I think one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book and that I wanted to to put it out in the world was because I wanted people to know that there have always been these like gender outlaws, right? People who have challenged the gender binary, gender norms. People who have. Um, pursued the life that they wanted to have, but also that people have always known about LGBTQ people. Like this idea that, you know, sometimes people say, oh, well, transgender is just a phase or, you know, homosexuality isn't real because it's made up. It's a choice. Um, And I want to say, look, there have been people throughout history who have had same-sex relationships or who have identified with not the gender that they were born as. Mm-hmm. Um, who have pursued these these lives counter to what society expected them to do. Um, and that's really important to recognize that history and to write about it. Um, and also to see how, you know, if you look closely at a lot of these texts that were written by, let's say, cisgender or straight people, uh, that, that they're fascinated by these characters, that they clearly find them interesting to write about, to think about, to talk about, um, and just to show how crucial... LGBTQ people have always been to society. And I think that that's really important for LGBTQ people now um, and, and society now to mm-hmm. say, you know, this isn't new. <laughs> this has always been around. Yeah. It's always been part of our culture and our culture is enriched by these people and their stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, did you have any trouble finishing the book or getting it published? Um, well, with finishing it, maybe. Uh. <laughs> Um, I mean, it's just a process. And I think at some point you kind of get a little scared. You're like, oh, I'm going to write a book. and It's got to have all these sources and you know, it's got to be double and triple checked. And, and no, am, am I up to it? And I think a couple years out of my PhD, I was kind of like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to write a book. I mean, my dissertation wasn't that great. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I talked to my mentor um, and she said, you just got to do it. Just, just finish it. You know, you've got most of it written. Just, you know, edit it. And don't spend too much time. Just, just get it out there, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I was really kind of heartened by that. And I had some other uh, friends slash mentors say to me, you know, like, it's just a book. <laughs> don't make it into something bigger uh, than it is. Yeah. Um, just finish it and, and get the reader reports. And then you'll know how to, you know, you know improve it. And it's true. I, I got... Uh, reader reports and one of them both of them had suggestions one of them had some actually a quite extensive suggestions for how to address the issue of transgenderedness in the book and so the book took though took on a new shape in some ways it was a little bit reshaped through the the, um, the reviewers for the press mm-hmm. 
Um, but the press has been great. I mean, I contact UVA because uh, the editor had, there had actually contacted me years ago after a conference where I presented about cross-dressing women. And, and she said, hey, are you, make, are you writing a book? Hmm, interesting. Um, and so I was like, uh, yeah, but it's not done. So when I was finishing <laughs> it, I contacted that I contacted the same editor at UVA and I said, I, I think I'm ready. Um, so, so yeah. And, and it's crazy to think that, you know, I signed the contract with them two years ago and it took, you know, it took another two years for the book to actually get published. But that's because I, I got the re- reviewer report that was improving, adding sources, editing, reshaping. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, then there's the proofs, you know, I was proofreading, uh, the, the text in the summer and then the galley proofs were this past fall and, and it's, just, it's a process. Um, but I think the biggest hump for me was like between the dissertation and then getting back to the book and saying, okay, the dissertation is not a book. No one wants to read that. Hmm. Uh. <laughs> um, to make this interesting and readable uh, as a book, um, and not rather as a, as a document, you know, proving my ability to do research, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right. it's going to need yeah. some work and, uh, you kind of doubt yourself sometimes, you know, you're like, Oh, you know, am I up to this? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think that was the biggest hump to it. And then once you get over that, once you dedicate yourself to being like, okay, I can do this and I'll, you know, just work on one chapter and then I'll work on the next one. And then I'll work on the next one. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you kind of get in the groove and, um, people have been very encouraging, very yeah. encouraging. And every time I talk to someone about the topic, they're very excited about it. And that's also helped me feel like it was a worthwhile project to pursue. Yeah. Sounds like you had a lot of doubts along the way as you went chapter by chapter, almost the way you described it. Yeah. It's, you know, I don't know. It's a, it seems like a monumental thing to write a, a research book like this. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, it seems such, such a big project. And I think that's why it really helped when, when someone said to me, it's just a book. Yeah. Yeah. It's just your first book. There'll yeah. be others. <laughs> this will seem like nothing yeah. down the line. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what did you, did you find, were you most, were you most pained by the sourcing, rewriting your style, you know, like what part of it, or is it just I, the size, like you say? I think it was the style, you know, because it, it meant having to go back and reread you know, the stuff I had written five or six years earlier and say, oh, okay, like this, I'd be like, oh, this part is really good. Wow, I wrote that? That's great. And then the other parts, I'm like, oh, this is really clunky, (laughs) not smooth. Um, And I, you know, when you're a student, you're kind of putting a lot of sources in there. You're like, and then this source said this, and then this source said this. And, you know, in a book, no one really wants to read what other people had to say. They want to read what you have to say. Right. Right. So there was some editing that happened there, and I'm very fortunate to have a writing group that has been working with me um, since the end of my PhD, and we've been workshopping each other's stuff for years and years at this point. And so they were kind enough to, to read and reread every chapter and give me really solid feedback mm-hmm. um, so that I knew if I was going in the right direction or not. And luckily, luckily, my dissertation was not as bad as I feared. It was just, again, it's, it's kind of like a mental thing. You're like, I really want to look at this thing that I wrote right. before. Um, yeah, I think it's just a, a mental block. Yeah, I was going to ask how you um, adjusted your writing style to fit what was considered better, like what sort of training or, or 
and it sounds like the writing group was the main thing. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I would say just reading more and professionalizing, you know, going to conferences and presenting and then publishing articles. And I feel like with each article that I published after finishing my Ph.D., my writing style just got better and smoother and, and more direct, I think, also. I mean, making an academic argument is is a lot of work because you want to say something original um, that actually contributes something to the field that you're working in. But you're also trying to write in a way that, uh, you know, a general readership would find interesting. Yeah. And I think that, to me, was the, the key, right, thinking about, you know, what is going to be useful for this. I mean, when we publish academic books, you know, how many people are actually going to read it cover to cover, right? Um, but what's really, I think, heartening is that a lot of students may use this book mm-hmm. in their undergraduate classes, in their graduate classes, and maybe they'll only read one chapter, or maybe they'll only read the part that I write about, you know, where they're, where I'm talking about the book that they're writing a, a seminar paper about. But if that helps them make their argument, then that's great. And, mm-hmm. and thinking about students of the audience for my book, I think, really helped me with the style and making mm-hmm. sure that it was accessible um, and interesting and um, useful, mm-hmm. right? Because who is going to read an academic book? Mm-hmm. My friends, maybe. Well, Researchers, but also students. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, so now having discussed how how what you went through for this book, uh, what's your current writing project? <laughs> Is there Ooh. one? <laughs> um, well, I have, I have an article that I'm revising currently, which is about pop culture on Twitter mm. um, and looking at actresses who play lesbian on screen, um, mm. like Kate Blanchett or uh, Rachel Weiss. Um, and they're not lesbians, but they're kind of embraced by the lesbian community, which is I, I thought was interesting because, you know, when you have uh, cisgender actors who are um, played by, or excuse me, when you have cisgender actors who play transgender actors, like that's basically at this point, it's, it's very, um, it's thought of very badly, right? Like that you should cast a transgender actor to play that role. Mm-hmm. Um, but the lesbian fan community has been really um embracing of straight actresses who play lesbian characters in a sensitive way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been working on that as a kind of, you know, pop culture exploration. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as the next book project, I, I do want to go back to the 18th century. Uh, and I want to think about tourism and thinking about the idea of, of tourism as a queer practice and tourism as practitioned by queer people in the past. Mm. And my working hypothesis is that um, that queer people were really crucial to the growth of tourism as a concept and as a practice. Hmm. So I'm excited to do that. And uh, I love to travel. So this yeah. topic was meant to be a way for me to get to, to do research and travel. So mm-hmm. The virus has thrown a little bit of a wrench into that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, I have already done quite a bit of travel to um, places of, let's say, queer pilgrimage. Um, so I might start with the places that I've already been to and then, um, hopefully in the next year or so, maybe, maybe in two years, I can plan some research trips to, uh, for the additional, um, chapters. And we're talking about locations globally or in a specific continent or region? 
Um, I mean, probably a fair amount of it will be in Europe. I want to go back to, I've been to Italy before, but not to do research. Uh, but there was a lot of interesting stuff happening in the Naples, uh, Pompeii, Vesuvius region mm-hmm. in the 18th century uh, mm-hmm. with the discovery of some of the antiquities and people would travel down there on their grand tours. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have a lot of like homosocial uh, interaction among male travelers there. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. But then there's also uh, the home of the ladies of Langafan, mm-hmm. Um were two cousins who lived in the north of Wales and they built this beautiful house that they designed themselves and they decorated themselves. And um, they were kind of a tourist attraction. Even Ann Lister went and visited them. Hmm. So I want to go to their house. I want to go to Ann Lister's house, Shibden Hall. Um, so some definitely, definitely several things in England. How we want to write about Versailles and Marie Antoinette, um, where I have been already. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I am kind of hoping to maybe go to the Caribbean as well and think about um, the role of the Caribbean as a site of tourism and, and when did that happen and mm-hmm. you know what did people you know have to say about travel to the Caribbean? Mm-hmm. So we'll see. I haven't really explored the Caribbean side of things yet, but uh, I would like to include that uh, so that it's not quite so Eurocentric. We'll yeah. see. Maybe, maybe China. I don't know. I know that people traveled there in the 18th century. So yeah, it's that's inter- all going to be in the research to come. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting if you think that travel um, allows people to basically share share rooms when they might not normally, you know, and, and just basically sure. disappear. Wh- whoever you want, mm-hmm. even you know, straight, gay, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, it's you can you're freer. Yeah. To do what you yeah, well, in a different culture too. I mean, you have Mary Montague writing her letters, uh, Turkish embassy letters, and uh, one of the things that I'm hoping to write about is is the the trip that she takes to the bath, the Turkish bath, and she's so surprised, but also very interested in these Turkish women who are naked and bathing together, mm-hmm. um, and and kind of experiencing that cultural difference, mm-hmm. um, and then writing about it and, and thinking about you know. What did she find interesting about that? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Um, so where can people find uh, find you online, your work, your thoughts, that sort of thing? Sure. Well, I'm, I am on Twitter, mm-hmm. um, and I, I try to tweet mostly stuff to do with academia on mm-hmm. there. Um, my handle is at KleinUla, mm-hmm. kind of reversed. Okay. Can, and can I do you sp- have a – sorry? Can you spell that again? Um, sure. It's uh, – K-L-E-I-N-U-L-A. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And your other stuff? Yeah. And I do have a personal website. Um, and I created a, a website also for my for my book. So if you look up, um, I think it's sapphiccrossings.weebly.com. Mm-hmm. I have it on there. Okay. Uh, and there's a link on there to my, um, my personal page, which is just my name. Mm-hmm. dot weebly.com okay and I, might, I might not spell it out because it's a little long <laughs> no that's fine um, that's fine people can look it up uh, in the show notes yeah 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 um, uh, so that's probably the easiest way to to find me to get in touch um and i did also create a fan page for sapphic crossings on facebook yeah, okay. so um so there is that and i i think it's let me see yeah, could you hold up the book one more time? You only had it halfway yeah. up. Oh, sorry. Yeah, 
I think it's facebook.com forward slash um, traffic crossing. Yeah, cool. So, All right. Yep. There we go. Cool. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, so I've been posting on there just a couple times a week. So if you like the page, then you'll get little uh, snippets from the book and updates. Um, and, of course, links to any other interviews about the book um, mm. and places to buy it and when it goes on sale. Mm. It was on sale recently, and then I'm hoping it'll be on sale again. Um in a, in a few months. So. Okay. Okay. Well, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? Um, no, just thank you so much for having me and for letting me talk about oh, my yeah. book. And, um, it was a lot of research. It took a long time. Um, and of course I wasn't able to cover every single instance of cross-dressing in 18th century literature. So if I left out any of your favorite books, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but uh, I had to cut myself off somewhere. No, yeah, of course, yeah. Um, I also noticed your Star Wars stuff back there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I'm an amateur uh, painter, so this uh, um, <laughs> this BB-8 is my work. Wow. Okay. Nice. <laughs> I was. It kind of looked like I didn't know if it was a box for the figure, you know. No, or, but no, it, it's a it's a little canvas. I painted it with acrylic paints um, for a Star Wars art contest that I participated in some years ago um, when that movie came out. So, looks really good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Definitely a Star Wars fan. Cool, cool. Yeah, there's a lot of us out there. <laughs> um, all right. Well, thanks again for speaking with me. Yeah, thank you. In the next episode, I speak with David Arnold about his new science fiction survival novel, The Electric Kingdom. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. Thank you for listening to Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you like this episode, please subscribe for more. If you want daily book suggestions for new fiction and nonfiction studies in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, mysteries, gaming, game design, film history, and more, please check out my YouTube channel, Chris Alvarez, my website, chrisalvarez.com, or fullcontactnerd.com, my Twitch channel, Full Contact Nerd and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you're looking for new military and general history books and information, check out warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com, my YouTube channel, War Scholar, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want new technology, science, and space books, check out technologyandspace.com, my YouTube channel, Space Walks Money Talks, and my podcast, Technology and Space. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to keep imagining the past, the present, and the future.